So then. If you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision. Folks, and welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast. We are here today again to talk about books, to talk about all kinds of stuff. Uh, I'm Lance Fever Myers. And I'm LBDO. If you want to know what we're all about, Persistence of Vision Publishing has a uh, website. It is pov-publishing.com. If you go there, you can see comics by Walt Holcomb, Shannon Wheeler, Penny Van Horn, a lot of really, really great stuff. There's poetry, there are essays, there's even a piece by LBDO up there if you want to read his words of genius. Um, and speaking of LBDO's words of genius, he has a book coming out. You want to talk to uh, the folks about that a little bit? Yes. Can you imagine a book with a title like The Goddamn Fool? Well, you don't have to imagine. Just let it come into your doors of perception because it's coming soon. It's coming out in September, and I wrote it. And if you don't like it, you can bite it. <laughs> I do like it. I do happen to like it. And in the meantime, while you're waiting for that to come out, when is that coming out, by the way? When, when, when can we finally get our hands on such a copy? We're having a book release party in the third weekend of September at Malvern Books. So, yeah. Hell yeah. So in the meantime, as you wait, you can go to our website, which again is pov-publishing.com, and order a copy of my book, which is called Why So Much? Question mark. Author Lance Fever Myers, or just Lance Myers, if you will. Uh, read that. It is beautiful. It is fantastic. It will be your next favorite book. Uh, um, maybe your second favorite book next to the Illuminatus Trilogy, which is what we're going to discuss today. So who do we have with us here today? We have the great David Moses Fruchter, worldwide authority on the Illuminatus Trilogy, and all-around beloved Austin figure, superstar, uh, poet, writer, raconteur, frequent Dionysium contributor, and uh, generally a devilish guy. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Welcome to the show, sir. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Was that a reasonable introduction? Am I forgetting any of your major characteristics? Uh, no, you got the devil in there, and I think that's what's important. The devil is a liar. <laughs> that's what he wants you to think. Yes, he's good that way. So tell us, uh, David, how in the world did you wind up picking the Illuminatus Trilogy as your book to discuss? Well, it is probably the book that I can speak on with the most authority and experience of any book in my life. I encountered the Illuminatus Trilogy at the tender age of 14. My mom had a friend who was a late-night uh, DJ, and for my 14th birthday, he gave me two books, uh, one of which was the poetry collection by Charles Bukowski entitled uh, Playing the Piano Drunk Like a Percussion Instrument Until the Fingers Begin to Bleed a Bit. <laughs> and the other one was the Illuminatus Trilogy, and when he, which is a, if listeners don't know, it's a long, sprawling book, and to ensure that it captured the attention of a 14-year-old boy, he had dog-eared all the pages, which are a good number of pages that had really spicy sex scenes <laughs> in them. There are a lot of those, aren't there? And, uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, I was hooked, and uh, it's been a formative volume for me, I think, uh, from that point on throughout the rest of my life. 
So you brought us a dirty book. Yeah, it's my pleasure to do so. Excellent. Now, the Illuminatus trilogy is uh, obviously you, there's there's a familiar word in there. Trilogy? No, no, not trilogy. <laughs> the Illuminatus, which sounds like it should be the singular for Illuminati. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah, I think there are a number of characters in the book who are uh, uh, Illuminati, and I suppose each one would be an Illuminatus. Yes, and uh, and the the cover of the book if I remember correctly, has a, uh, the classic U.S. seal pyramid with the eye on it. Now, I think everyone who's ever held a dollar bill and accidentally looked at the back has noticed <laughs> that there's a very arcane symbol on the back of that dollar bill that, that does show a pyramid with an eye floating above it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's far from the only arcane thing about the design of the, of the $1 bill. Uh, for example, another one uh, which is referenced in this book is that the portrait of George Washington on the front of the $1 bill is thought by many to not be George Washington himself, but rather to be a defrocked Bavarian priest by the name of Adam Weishaupt, who was uh, the founder of at least one particular branch of uh, the Illuminati called the Ancient Illuminated Seers of Bavaria. The idea being that at some point he emigrated, he was contemporary with Washington, and the idea being that at some point he emigrated to uh, the North American continent and, in fact, took Washington's place. Now, when you say it is believed by many, Mm -hmm. you're actually referring to an incredibly small number of disturbed (laughs) people who have no idea what they're talking about, are you not? Well, you know, it's really, it's difficult to say. I don't think there's anybody uh, who really has a good bead on what many people or most people <laughs> think. So More uh, now than ever. Yeah. Um, which brings up a good, a good question, which would be, uh, are the Illuminati real? Is any of this real? Is any of this based in fact? Well, I think uh, a lot of it is. But one of the key things about secret societies is that... Th- there's no way to know how much is real and how much is fabrication, how much is legendary, how much is deliberate misinformation. Certainly, if there are secret societies which are still somehow in power, it's very much in their interest to create these clouds of uh, confusion, delusion, legendary about the things that they do. And their process of doing so is another large part of the Illuminatus trilogy is seeing these um, conspirators in action, uh, deliberately clouding uh, history and uh, who might actually be responsible for what. So the Freemasons would probably approve of this book. Is that what you're trying to tell us? Well, Freemasonry <laughs> is, is all through the book, as a matter of fact. And uh, one of the connections between uh, Weishaupt and Washington is that Washington, along with a number of the founding fathers, Jefferson and Franklin and others, uh, were, in fact, high-level Freemasons. Uh, and the ancient illuminated series of Bavaria was, um, by at least some accounts, a schism off of Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, Weishaupt himself had been a Freemason um, and then and then was no longer. You know, my grandfather was in the Freemasons. I still have his Freemason ring. Were there things that he refused to discuss about I, I never met the man, but uh, my mom tells me that he would have meetings in his house that she was not allowed to be there for. So I don't yes. know what was going on that a, a you know 
a child was <laughs> ushered out of the room when when everyone showed up to, to talk about the uh, the pyramid with the eye on top. But uh, <laughs> yes. yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, that's how they like to keep it. Well, we should probably clarify at this point that this is a novel. This is not a, a, a history of secret societies, although it deals with secret societies very extensively. But it does have characters. It does have stories. Yes. Uh, more than one Many. story, you might say. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the, the, the book and overview. Well, it is, um, it is a long and um, confusingly, <laughs> certainly complexly structured uh, novel that deals uh, with people investigating ancient conspiracies like uh, the Illuminati. And another thing that's sort of cloudy in the book is how far back some of these conspiracies go. Because one thing that genuinely has happened is a lot of organizations over time have sort of sprung up and then retrofitted their own history to claim a more ancient lineage than perhaps they actually possess in a continuous way. That happens a lot in the Illuminatus. There are any number of conflicting origin stories about the Illuminati and associated um, secret societies and, and organizations. Um, on a character level, I would say it is the depiction on, um, in the cases of a number of different characters of their progression through the process of letting go or beginning to question received wisdom, consensus, reality, and to uh, have their minds and eyes opened to the possibilities that there's more going on than they ever suspected than most people would ever suspect. Uh, at the same time, it's a sort of a science fiction uh, narrative. There are any number of fantastical elements, including talking dolphins, uh, an ancient, uh, I'm using that word a lot, this, this actually would predate ancient, uh, an enormous sea creature that lives uh, under the oceans that is named Leviathan, which is referenced in the Bible and other places. Um, Hobbes uh, uh, uses it in one of his allegories. Uh, and it's also the title of the third volume of the Illuminatus trilogy, Leviathan. Um, there is an enormous golden submarine uh, that is uh, piloted by one of the most charismatic characters in the book, Hagbard Selene, who is a sort of uh, pirate of the seas, uh, libertarian, mind-opening prankster. Um, it, uh, it's, it's certainly no one thing, this book. It's many, many things uh, intertwined together, uh, among which I think, it, literarily speaking, is... Um, a place that it carves for itself in a lineage that was pioneered by James Joyce. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson was a Joycean scholar, among his other eruditions. And uh, what I see in the Alone Out trilogy is a continuation of Joyce's work in, insofar as that the perspective uh, from which the story is told changes over and over again between characters, much like uh, in Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake. Time and place and point of view change perhaps even within the space of a paragraph itself without any particular clue or indication for the reader that that's happening, which I, I also see as, as, as quite Joycean. Uh, and, it, and also it's just dense with reference and erudition um, that uh, most people are not going to get most of these references. And again, that's another 
I think, fairly joystick characteristic. <laughs> so you're, you were mentioning characters. What about Saul Goodman? Saul Goodman's one of my favorites. He is a police detective who is assigned to investigate a bombing of a kind of um, alternative news magazine. And he, in the course of investigating this bombing, he finds a series of memos that the editor of this magazine uh, had assigned his research assistant to to um, explore that detail all of the different, uh, or not all, but many of the different uh, stories that are told about the origin of the Illuminati. And uh, Saul Goodman un undergoes his own kind of process and, and um, experience of having his world expanded, his mind open, achieving some kind of enlightenment or illumination. So Vince Gilligan, you think he's a fan? Vince Gilligan. <laughs> uh, breaking, breaking Bad guy. He's oh. the, yeah, the guy who wrote, uh, uh, you know, the Saul Goodman character for Breaking Bad. Oh, I, I you know, really? I, I have okay. not watched Breaking this Bad. This is, yeah, for, so for the Breaking Bad fans out there, I, I was surprised to hear the name Saul Goodman or see the, the, the name pop up in, in the Illuminati trilogy after having watched Breaking Bad because in the series, they, you know, he references, okay, it's a made-up name that he has, but he says it's, you know, like Saul Goodman. You know, that kind of... Oh, yeah. That kind of, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, LB and I were just discussing whether or not that particular phrase was popular in 1975. <laughs> if that was I, you know, I don't think it was. I don't right. think it was. But uh, according to the, I think, rules of reality, as such as they are laid out in the Illuminatus, the direction of influence there could have gone either way. That's right. It could have come from the present to the past. <laughs> yes, but it's, it's, exactly. it's, it's great to talk about the, the time period when this book was published because it's they are... These authors... Uh, Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea, Shea. Mm -hmm. uh, they have just gotten through the 60s and early 70s. So oh, yeah. the influence of that time period is enormous, not only through the uh, drug references and the the uh, references to expanding minds and, and things like that, but also we have to remember, and it's very different nowadays, but at that time there were societies running around, you know, they, they, we might call the, some of them terrorist groups or, or underground movements, but at the time, there was an alphabet soup of of uh, organizations in practice. You know, everything mm -hmm. from the Symbionese Liberation Army, which kidnapped Hat Patty Hearst, and no one knows what Symbionese means, and uh, uh, to the Weather Underground, mm -hmm. to uh, the Manson family. And a lot of these yeah. are referred to directly the in the book. Students for a Democratic Society. Students for a Democratic Society. The Yippies, which I think were very influential uh, on Illuminatus in their pranksterish uh, a way of a sort of aesthetic terrorism. Yes, and and so the entire book, though, kind of takes that and then applies turbo to it because it, they, oh, yeah. they multiply the number of such societies by a, a factor of 100. Oh, least. yeah, I have a little list here of some of the ones that are prominent in the book. There's the Justified Agents of Moomoo, who many years later became a kind of, um, uh, a kind of electronic dance music band. Uh, there's the Legion of Dynamic Discord, uh, the Aresian Liberation Front, the Cult of the Black Mother, uh, and then some ones that uh, actually have existed, uh, the Ordo Templi Orientis, the Ancient Illuminated Seers of Bavaria, the Argentum Astrum. Uh, another historical figure who is very influential on Wilson, I think, and who, although he's not really referenced too much, I think um, also runs through the Illuminatus trilogy is Aleister Crowley, who um, was himself a... A mystic and a prankster and a um, 
a secret society kind of person. So all of these appear as playing cards in the game Illuminati. You ever played that game? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I got the game, you know, probably in eighth grade, I think. And, and you know, we'd have our slumber parties and play Illuminati and Car Wars all night long. Steve, Steve Jackson <laughs> yeah. games. I remember opening the package and sorting out the cards and finding this one mysterious card that had one word on it. It was Fenord. Oh, yes. And I immediately felt completely discombobulated. I didn't know what was going on. Well, Lance, I have like five <laughs> things. I have like five <laughs> things to respond to in what you just said. One of which is that when I moved here to Austin in 1994, I was delighted to find out that Steve Jackson Games, which uh, was located here in Austin, mm -hmm. also at, the same, at that time was running an internet service provider called Illuminati Online uh, back in the dear old days of dial-up. And that, is, that was my first... Uh, Internet service provider. Austin nice. was IO. <laughs> and what is Fenord? Uh, so Fenord is a concept um, that is not original to Illuminatus, but has developed a lot in Illuminatus. It actually comes from a little volume that we'll, we may want to discuss further called the Principia Discordia. But the idea is that in everyone as a child, and this supposedly happens in public schools, is uh, sort of hypnotized and indoctrinated to not consciously notice when they see instances of this word FNORD, F-N-O-R-D. And at the same time, they are conditioned to react to the subconscious perception of this word with uh, fear and anxiety, a kind of a fight or flight reaction. Uh, the purpose of that being that FNORDs are scattered all through newspapers and other media in the articles so that as you're reading them, you're, this kind of subconscious, unconscious tension is building up. The one place in these publications that you will find no fenords is in the advertising, so that the advertising will be a, uh, a soothing balm to this, this, you know, this uh, underlying anxiety. And uh, like so many things in the Illuminatus trilogy, this is a, um, a ridiculous and farcical idea that speaks to an underlying truth. I was thinking about this earlier today, how on Facebook, for example, you have posts by people and groups which are uh, just a stream of various things to either be tense about, uh, anxious about, angry about, or to envy, you know, in the case of people who are sort of uh, curating their the best parts of their lives to present on Facebook. So you have all of that, which is, you know, is very neurosis producing. Uh, but then in between there, as a little relief, you have products, yeah. lots of products. <laughs> so it's a very Fenordian system. It uh, is true that the, the ads tend to, with some exceptions, be uh, more relaxing than a lot of the other content. Right, and it's certainly no accident. And so the idea in the Illuminatus trilogy is that once you have achieved a certain um, phase of enlightenment or you've had your mind open, then you begin to see the Fnords. And the, one, of the, one of the most uh, prevalent, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, motifs in the book comes from a book we discussed or, or a legend that we discussed in our very first episode of the Iliad, where we talk about the origin story of the Trojan War, where uh, the goddess Eris basically starts all the trouble by throwing a golden apple into a banquet that is being held in honor of uh, Thetis and her husband, uh, who are, are going to give birth to uh, Achilles. But the, the purpose of her golden apple is to create discord among 
the three main goddesses, and that leads to the beauty contest that is judged by Paris, which leads to uh, Helen being awarded to Paris and... Uh, Stolen away from Menelaus. Stolen away from Menelaus, and the rest is uh, a very bloody history. Right. That golden apple has written on it the Greek word, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, Kalisti, which means to the prettiest one, thus the the goddess is squabbling over who's the the rightful uh, possessor of that apple. That scene is also uh, presented, that scene of the banquet is presented in the Illuminatus trilogy. In that, though, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, it's a big sack of uh, Acapulco gold, uh, <laughs> marijuana. It's yes. a big, it's, it's, and uh, <laughs> and it sort of turns into a drug fueled uh, banquet. Uh, yes, and 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 that apple itself uh, is very prominent in the iconography of Illuminatus. There's this symbol called the sacred cow, not uh, cow like um, the animal, but cow uh, as a single unit of chaos, C H A O. Probably not a real word, um, but the what the sacred cow looks like is the yin and yang symbol, the Tao, um, but in place of the little dots of uh, um, the opposite color, which you find in each of the twin paisleys of the Tao. Uh, the yin and yang. Uh, the yin yang, yes. Um, uh, in place of one of the dots, you have the golden apple, um, which you can tell has a little K on it, and in place of the other dot, it has a pentagon representing the twin forces of order and, and disorder, which comprise um, all things by this, by this conception uh, and are in constant uh, cooperation and, and competition. So the listener will will have gathered by now that this is a fairly typical novel. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's pretty much your everyday, uh, uh, you know, psychedelic mind spree. Well, okay, so is it just that, though? Is it, it, it? Do you think that the main point of this book is just entertainment, or is there something deeper that we should be paying attention to here? Oh, I don't th- Yeah, I would what hardly say— What are the politics say, of the book? Well, the, pol- the, the politics are, are many and multivariate, like just about everything about the book. I don't think that you could say that it has uh, a main point, except perhaps the main point of think for yourself and don't trust any perceived or received wisdom. Hmm. Um, if, if, if there was an underlying message, that would be it. But I, I think the authors would probably even decry that, like, don't listen to us when we say think for yourself. You know, they might say um, the it, it, it just it just does so many different things. So politically, there are characters who represent um, libertarianism, anarcho-socialism, leftism um, uh, and even even uh, bureaucracy uh, as, as sort of political orientations. Uh, I, I think I would say, though, libertarianism in this book is. Um, it means a different thing now than it meant in the in the mid seventies. Um, it uh, I, I think the capital L libertarian movement of today um, falls prey to a lot of things that uh, are pretty harshly critiqued in the Illuminatus trilogy. It's more of a lowercase L libertarianism, uh, and one of those distinctions between the two perhaps um, might have to do with property. Among the many contradictions that Illuminatus presents uh, is uh, the idea that property... So, so here's, here, here's a, a duality. On one hand, they say that property is theft. On another hand, they say that property is liberty. 
and that has to do with whether the rights to that property are enforced by a state or uh, embraced by um, a consensus of free-thinking people. Of course, it doesn't actually contradict. Those two phrases don't actually contradict each other, right? I mean, they they seem to because one makes it sound like property is a good thing and one makes it sound like a bad thing, but the idea that theft is liberty is not actually a contradiction. Well, I Especially think, when you have a character who is a, a pirate. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, I, I think that um, I think that many times throughout the book, uh, a seeming contradiction is shown to be a unity. I think that's a that's an ongoing motif. Um, this character, by the way, who is a pirate, Hagbard Selene, began his career as a lawyer defending the property rights of Native Americans. And he presents this idea to one of the uh, the chiefs of the tribes he's representing, this idea that property is theft. And uh, the response from the, um, the Native American uh, guy is, well, if the government takes our land, uh, then property is theft. But if we get to keep it, property is not theft. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so there's, 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 no, there, there's no thing, there's no idea or uh, ideology or aphorism or anything of that nature that's presented in the Illuminatus without being undercut also at some point, which is one of the things I love about it. Yeah, I mean, they, that's another great motif in the book, right, is that the... Uh, the most seemingly important and profound revealed truths in the book frequently turn out to be fairly obscene jokes. <laughs> and vice versa. And vice versa, yes. Yeah, uh, I think that's exactly right. So the word Illuminati, where, do, where does that start? Because I was, I was trying to do a little bit of research on it and, and you know, looking up, okay, so uh, the secret societies that we're referring to, what, what are their origins and where do these come from? And are they a good thing or a bad thing? And who belongs to them? Uh, well, all of that is clouded in a mystery. <laughs> and, and there's no, there's no, there, there's no solid answers to be found to any of those questions. Uh, the, one of the ideas presented in the book is that there are some secret societies that are... Uh, sort of all about the enrichment and um, and and raising up of, of a few key members, and there's other secret societies that are fighting the first group uh, that are more about uh, the liberation of, of each individual, and then you might find out that both of those secret societies were actually being controlled by a third, more shadowy secret society with aims that we couldn't suspect. Um, so... Uh, I th and as far as uh, Illuminatus as a word, I think it's cognate uh, with enlightenment and all of the various um, uh, uh, mystical and rash. And then, uh, then uh, by the time of the Enlightenment, more rationalist groups who uh, use the metaphor of um, light coming in as uh, as a way to talk about their eyes being opened to uh, a reality that they hadn't seen before. And I, so I think that's the that's that's the central origin of um, the word uh, Illuminati. The Illuminati were the enlightened ones, the ones who could see. Before we go to our lightning round, I'd like to ask you about a few books that that seem to me to be part of the same ecosystem as the Illuminatus trilogy. I'm thinking, of course, of and you mentioned uh, James Joyce's Ulysses in particular and Finnegan's Wake, but also 
the works of uh, Thomas Pynchon, especially Absolutely. Crying of Lot 49. Yes, which I, it actually is referenced uh, a number of times in Illuminatus in, yes. in subtle ways. And, uh, and, and even Infinite Jest yes. uh, and uh, some others. I don't know. What, 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 what do you think of as the, as the relationship there? I think it's very much in that tradition and, and lineage, and I think that if the publishers of the Illuminatus trilogy had decided to publish it as a mainstream book instead of as a science fiction book, its place in uh, our um, you know our, our cultural history would be much more in line with the places of those other books. It would be elevated. Um, all of those books have science fictional elements in it, uh, but none of them except for the Illuminatus was published as science fiction. Uh, I think that if Infinite Jest, for example, had been published as science fiction, it clearly has many science fictional elements, I don't think that we would have a David Foster Wallace archive at the Harry Ransom Center. Mm. Uh, there, it's, it's, it was ghettoized in this way. And I think uh, it, in that sense, it, it was doomed or maybe blessed to forever be an underground favorite. It's also true that the authors would very conspicuously agree with you in that assessment and make a lot of references, do they not, to the fact that they are being ghettoized uh, even as they're writing the book? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, that actually reminds me that one of, the, one of the really fun things about uh, this, if I can find it, is there is a, um, a book reviewer yeah, within uh, the Illuminatus named Epicene Wildblood, and, uh, and he, uh, <laughs> he reviews the book that you're actually holding in your hands reading, and he says this about it. It's a dreadfully long monster of a book, Wildblood said pettishly, and I certainly won't have time to read it, but I'm giving it a thorough skimming. The authors are utterly incompetent, no sense of style or structure at all. It starts out as a detective story, which is a science fiction, then goes off into the supernatural, and is full of the most detailed information of dozens of ghastly, boring subjects. And the time sequence is all out of order and a very pretentious imitation of Faulkner and Joyce. Worst yet, it has the most raunchy sex scenes thrown in just to make it sell, I'm sure, and the authors, who I've never heard of, have the supreme bad taste to introduce real political figures into this mishmash and pretend to be exposing a real conspiracy. You can be sure I won't waste time reading the rubbish, but I'll have a perfectly devastating review of Ready for You by tomorrow. <laughs> Very good. That sounds like a great introduction to our lightning round. Here it is. Lightning round. The questions that we put to all guests. We'll start with, uh, what's the first time you fell in love with a book? The first time I fell in love with a book was uh, when I was uh, a kid, probably five or six, it was a book called Kenny's Window by Maurice Sendak. Mm. Very different than Sendak's uh, work that he's best known for, like Where the Wild Things Are, In the Night Kitchen, which are these very saturated, colorful picture books for kids. The illustrations in Kenny's window are spare, and there's a lot of white space on the page. And also, it's much longer. It has like seven chapters. The, what happens in the book is that Kenny is having a dream, and in the dream... The he's he's in this garden where half of the time it's day, half of the garden, it's day all the time and half of the garden, it's night all the time. So if you want to be awake, you just step over to the day half. If you want to take a nap, you just step over to the night half. There's uh, he wants to stay there. There's a rooster with four feet there who says he can only stay if he answers seven questions. And then he wakes up and he's distraught because he does, does not remember the questions. He doesn't know how to get back to the garden. But then under his 
pillow, he finds a crumpled up piece of paper that has the seven questions on it. And so then the book goes through and he answers the seven questions in turn. And much later, I found out that Sendak himself um, completely uh, reviled that book. It was one of the first ones he published. (laughs) He felt like it went on way too long. Um, he didn't care for his illustrations of that one, but for me, I just, I love that book so much. And to this, to this day, um, uh, it's one of my favorite books, Kenny's Window. I find it's often the case that artists are, cannot be trusted to evaluate their own work at all. That's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Second question. Has a book ever changed your mind about anything? Well, there was a book that changed, I, I, I think that. In my conception, the mind is an ever-changing thing, and everything you perceive changes it. You know, it's an electrochemical matrix that's always in motion. Answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but when I was listening to the other uh, episodes of the podcast and I heard that question, I thought of a book that changed how my mind thought about minds, which is a book called Consciousness Explained by Daniel Dennett. And it presented to me this notion that there is no center to the self. There's no, there's no single thing that everything else about the mind is kind of some variation of. There's no, there's no, um, there's no essence to the mind. What you, instead you have is you have modules of thought uh, that are competing uh, with one another in a, uh, an almost uh, natural selection kind of environment within your mind, um, and. At any given time, some cluster of these modules is sort of dominant in in controlling the body and kind of like presenting to the perception of your consciousness what's what you know they say is actually going on. But um, but there's but there's no center, and I found I found that to be very a powerful idea, and one I still uh, really enjoy entertaining. Have you read Freedom Evolves? No, I haven't. Okay. That's, was, I was hoping you could explain that one to me. Who is it? <laughs> That's Who is Daniel that? Dennett. That's oh, also okay. Daniel Dennett, yes. That, uh, yeah. that, that Daniel Dennett concept you're describing is, is definitely goes back to Leibniz to some extent. And, of course, is also yeah, yeah. discussed in uh, Marvin Minsky's Society of Mind. A uh, very comparable idea. Yeah. And I think also uh, in the original notion of mimetics before it became just you yeah. know, word, pictures with words that, uh, that uh, Dawkins um, presented in The Selfish Gene. Fantastic. Has a book ever changed your life? Well, the Illuminatus, I think. Well, I've, I've wondered whether it changed my life. It felt more at the time like it sort of exp- it, uh, pushed me in a direction that I was already heading in. Um, I think that, um, that's what they want you to think. (laughs) Yes. And I I like to think what they want me to think. It feels good. (laughs) Uh, I, I don't know that I have a particular, um, a particular volume that, that, uh, that changed my life in particular, although there's a fantastic compendulum, uh, compendulum, compendium of mythology called mythology by, uh, British scholar, Edith Hamilton, that I was really into around the time that um, the Christianity of my youth was kind of loosing its hold on, on, my, um, on my belief structure. Just the idea that, in fact, people all over the world had their own system of gods, and the god that you happen to believe in has more to do with where you were born than anything else really pushed me to uh, 
think that there's just no way then that, that any single one could be the one or the truth. Fantastic. Has a book ever uh, made you cry? Oh, so many times. Uh, I love it so much when that happens. I feel like every time that a story uh, or a song, any kind of uh, artistic creation moves me to tears, it feels like such a gift to me. Um, one that I'm thinking of right now is kind of a funny example. Uh, I've just recently finished reading uh, a long, sprawling science fiction series called The Vorkosigan Saga by Lois McMaster Bujold, which is... It's a, it's a lot of different things. It's space opera. It's military science fiction. Um, it's kind of soap opera-ish, but her drawing of the characters is so well-rounded and complicated, and the things that happen to them emotionally have such truth that I've found myself tearing up any number of times through it, which is not you know what you tend to think of when it comes to space opera, but um, <laughs> it did it for me. Fantastic. Um, name a book that you have read more than once. Uh, I'm uh, when I was a kid, I used to reread con- almost every book that I read. I read multiple times, partially because it lived in small towns with small libraries. Um, these days, I find that I don't reread books very often. One author that I do go back to the well on, though, frequently is my favorite author, Samuel uh, Delaney. He's a science fiction writer. First came to prominence in the late '60s, early '70s. He's um, uh, a black, gay, urban. Uh, writer of science fiction, but also on a literary level, so uh, complex and um, uh, so many interesting ideas presented at such a rapid pace that every time I go back to his work, I I see new things. One I've probably gone back to the most is called Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand. Hmm. Fantastic. Okay, here comes the million-dollar question. <laughs> do you have any poetry committed to memory? I do, in fact. Uh, Fantastic. Have, I love uh, that answer. A uh, number of poems committed to, to memory. Um, the, <laughs> I was thinking um, when I was listening to Joe Hoppe's uh, Iliad episode of BOV here that, um, you know, uh, epic poetry was in the form that it was because poetry was easier to remember than a lot of other things and and pre the advent of, you know, the printing press and so on. It was the way that uh, transgenerational cultural transmission happened. Uh, One interesting fact about um, the Homeric epics is that uh, it's thought that at the time they also had distinct melodies that were associated with them, but the melodies have been Mm. lost to time. The words stay on. But it also, but it made me think of how... um, one thing they say about uh, Emily Dixon's poems is um, that they are suited to particular melodies. One I was thinking of is, um, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. <laughs> the carriage held but just us two and immortality, <laughs> immortality. Beautiful. But, that, but that's actually not the poem. That's not the poem that I want to, if I can, if I can be indulged. Please, Yes. Uh, I was recently privileged to hear the great San Antonio poet Naomi Shihab Nye give a talk on W.S. Merwin, who's one of my favorite poets. And um, it just reminded me of this Merwin poem that I have memorized called Poem for Dorothy. Dorothy was the name of his first wife, and um, uh, it's sort of a sort of a graveyard love story to my, uh, to my perception. It goes, No shape in darkness single stands. But we, in privacy and night, taking surprise of love for light, merged the dark fortunes of our hands. 
Patience of fire insists and warms through dust, through dusty bone, the breath. The ear and intellect of death, direct of love, the heated forms. Sitting on stones, we kiss to please some stilled remembrance that shares our breath. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll edit this part out. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> oh, there's two lines at the end. We'll edit, we'll edit the now. pause out. Can you, can, um, you, can you continue? Yeah, let me, let me try to start from the third stanza again. Okay. Sitting on stones, we kiss to please some stilled remembrance that shares our breath. And then there's a line I don't remember, but the final line is, from ruin moving amends our peace, which I just see as kind of like a skeletal hand thrusting up from a grave, <laughs> confronting these lovers. So I guess in answer to your question, almost. I almost, I almost have a poem memorized. I'm suddenly remember, uh, reminded of a poem uh, that comes from the, these Illuminatus books, uh, Pretty Little Boydies. Playing in the toities, <laughs> which that's is described one. in the book as the essence of Zen. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, thank you, uh, David Moses Fruchter. What oh, a fantastic so conversation. Uh, a very, very interesting book. And uh, we'll have to have you back again because it was a delight. Uh, we want you, ladies and gentlemen, to come to pov-publishing.com. We want you to buy Why So Much. The question mark is still free, uh, and uh, so you will buy that book. You will do it now. Uh, I want you to feel the soothing message of this advertisement and let it flow <laughs> through you as a feeling of peace and, and absence, fnords, <laughs> absence of fnords. Uh, thank you so much. Lance Fevermeyers, any final words? Buy my book, and thank you, David. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.